the headlines tonight. Washington's wet wonder. Civil war chicken bayou. And Sharnhorst sunk in snow. Plus, coming up, the mayor of London announces plans to turn the Thames into a ski slope. Those are the headlines. Holy Christmas, I wish they weren't. News bang, unraveling the tapestry of lies one thread at a time. 1776. The American colonies have declared war on their own trousers. Led by George Washington, a man so wooden he could be used as a broom handle, the Continental Army are waging war against their breaches in an attempt to win independence from their own pantaloons. The conflict began last night when Washington led a surprise attack on his own underpants at Trenton, New Jersey. Witnesses described the scene as a right old pants-up. The British, who had been busy fighting for a right to tighty-whities, were caught with their breeches down and were soundly thrashed by Washington's men in three-cornered hats and stockings. The Hessians, known for their love of lederhosen, tried to intervene, but were no match for the rebels' freedom-loving loincloths. The war has since escalated with both sides accusing each other of being tight asses. France and Spain have thrown their culottes into the ring in support of Washington's cause while King George III is said to be panting with rage. The conflict shows no sign of coming to trousers anytime soon. 1862. 1862, and it's the American Civil War. The Battle of Chickasaw Bayou kicks off in Vicksburg, Mississippi. The Confederate Army, fighting for their right to be wrong, and the expansion of slavery, repulse an advance by the Union Army. The Vicksburg Campaign aims to control the Mississippi River and the city of Vicksburg itself. Vicksburg surrenders to Ulysses S. Grant in 1863, marking a turning point in the war. Afterwards, Reconstruction hits Vicksburg like a ton of bricks, but white supremacists violently reclaim power. Fast forward to today, and Vicksburg's home to three United States Army Corps of Engineers installations. 13. 1943. The German battleship Scharnhorst, a.k.a. the Pocket Battleship, due to its ability to fit into most trouser pockets, was sunk today during an ill-fated attempt to gatecrash the Arctic Convoy's cocktail party. The incident occurred in the chilly waters of the North Cape, where the Royal Navy's HMS Duke of York's, known as the Big Drinker, was on bouncer duty. Eyewitnesses report that Scharnhorst, reeking of schnapps and hubris, tried to blag its way past security by claiming it was in the Navy. The tense standoff escalated when Scharnhorst flashed its 928-centimetre guns and demanded entry. Duke of York, refusing to be intimidated by such bravado, retaliated with a barrage of naval artillery fireworks. Scharnhorst quickly sobered up and realised it had sailed into a storm it couldn't weather. As it sank beneath the icy waves, Captain von Wave Hoffenberg was heard to mutter, Ah, I should have stayed in port. The loss dealt a blow to Hitler's ego and marked a turning point in this ridiculous war which everyone is fed up with now. News bang. The truth is the only thing that matters and nothing else really matters. And now... Shakanaka Giles is here to give us a glimpse into the meteorological whims of the weather. Tomorrow, 
the weather will be as unpredictable as a teenager's mood swings. In the southeast, expect a drizzle so fine, it's like the skies weeping with joy. In the Midlands, a crisp chill will nip at your nose, the perfect excuse to huddle around the fireplace with a hot cocoa. The northwest will be graced with a gentle snowfall, dusting the landscape like a sugar-coated gingerbread house. And in the northeast, the winds will howl like a pack of wolves, but fear not, they're just playing a festive tune. In summary, a day of mixed emotions, much like the leftover turkey sandwich you'll be having for lunch. And that's all the weather. Thirteen. Nineteen forty-three. In a decisive moment of the Second World War, the German battleship Scharnhorst met its watery end during a daring attempt to ambush Arctic convoys. Armed with nine twenty-eight Selenum guns, the Scharnhorst was no match for the Royal Navy's HMS Duke of York in the Battle of the North Cape. The Arctic convoys, braving treacherous waters, sailed from the UK, Iceland, and North America to supply the Soviet Union. Aircraft played a crucial role in the war, including the deployment of nuclear weapons. And now, for a deeper dive into the event, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. This is my war. The war that's been raging for years. The war that's seen the world's greatest powers clash in a battle of epic proportions. As I stand here, the sound of gunfire echoes in my ears. The smell of smoke fills my nostrils. The taste of blood is on my tongue. But today, my friends, is a day of reckoning. For today, the German battleship Scharnhorst, a behemoth armed with 928 seam guns, has been sunk in the Battle of the North Cape. The Scharnhorst, a symbol of German might, has been brought down by the Royal Navy's HMS Duke of York, the battle raged for hours, but in the end, it was the Duke of York that emerged victorious. The Arctic convoys, those brave ships that sailed from the UK, Iceland and North America to ports in the Soviet Union have triumphed. But this is not a time for celebration, this is a time for reflection. For we know that the war is far from over, the battles will continue, the casualties will mount. But we will fight on, we will fight for freedom, we will fight for justice, we will fight for peace. For this is my war, the war that must be fought, the war that must be won. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of the battle. Lee, 1996. In a tale that continues to baffle and captivate, the enigma of John Bonnet Ramsey's demise deepens. The six-year-old American beauty queen was discovered lifeless in her family's Boulder, Colorado abode, her young life tragically snuffed out by brutal force. The case, an open investigation, lingers in limbo, the spectre of the unsolved haunting the annals of crime history. And now, to shed light on this enduring mystery, we turn to our crime correspondent, Ken Shit. Gather round as we journey back to the year 1996, a time when life was simpler and beauty pageants were all the rage. But this tale is not one of glitz and glamour, but of horror and tragedy. 
a tale that still sends shivers down the spines of those who dare to remember it. In the picturesque town of Boulder, Colorado, lived a family as wholesome as apple pie, John and Patsy Ramsey, their nine-year-old son, Burke, and their six-year-old daughter, John Benet. But on Christmas night, their world came crashing down around them, for John Benet was found beaten and strangled in the basement of their home. Her lifeless body lay there like a grotesque doll, her innocence stolen by some twisted soul. The investigation that followed was like something out of a detective novel, full of twists and turns, accusations and denials. The police suspected everyone from the Ramses themselves to various members of the community. But despite countless leads and endless speculation, the case remained unsolved for over two decades. Now, in 2023, John Bonnet's murder remains an open investigation, a haunting reminder of the darkness that can lurk even in the most idyllic of settings. And while justice has yet to be served, one thing is certain, this little girl's death was a tragedy beyond words, a senseless act of violence that robbed her family and friends of a bright future filled with promise and potential. So let us never forget John Benet Ramsey, a beautiful little girl whose life was cut tragically short by some depraved individual or individuals who still walk among us today. May her memory continue to inspire us to fight against evil in all its forms, no matter how dark or insidious. Lee, 1996. The Federation of Korean Trade Unions has declared a strike of unprecedented scale in South Korea. This union, symbolizing the company union tendency, stands apart from the more militant Korean Confederation of Trade Unions. The catalyst for this action, a proposed law that could simplify employee dismissals and curtail labor organizing rights. The magnitude of this strike promises to leave an indelible mark on the South Korean socio-political landscape. And the Federation of Korean Trade Unions has called for a strike, the largest in South Korean history. Joining me now on the line to discuss the implications of this development is our reporter, Hardiman Pesto. Good evening, Martin. I'm here with the Federation of Korean Trade Unions, who have called for a strike, the largest in South Korean history. Pesto, I'm sure you're aware that this union represents the company union tendency and is distinct from the more militant Korean Confederation of Trade Unions. Yes, that's right, Martin. So tell me, Pesto, why are they striking? Well, Martin... It's in response to a law that would make firing employees easier for employers and limit labor organizing rights. And who is in favor of this law? The government, Martin. And who is against it? The Federation of Korean Trade Unions, Martin. Pesto, do you understand the concept of a strike? Yes, Martin. It's when workers stop working to protest something. And what are they hoping to achieve with this strike? They're hoping to stop the law from being passed, Martin. Pesto, do you think that's likely? Well, Martin, I think anything is possible when people come together in solidarity. Pesto, have you ever heard of the term realistic expectations? Yes, Martin. It's when you consider the likelihood of something happening based on the circumstances. And do you think the Federation of Korean Trade Unions has realistic expectations for this strike? Well, Martin, I think they have hope. Pesto, hope is not a strategy. Well, Martin, sometimes it's all you have. Pesto, I think we've heard enough from you tonight. 1946. Today, in 1946, Bugsy Siegel unveiled the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, the oldest establishment on the Las Vegas Strip. 
A key player in the development of the strip, Siegel wielded influence within the Jewish mob and Italian-American mafia. Famed for gambling, shopping, dining and entertainment, Las Vegas has transformed into a popular resort city. The Strip, a stretch of Las Vegas Boulevard, boasts a high concentration of hotels and casinos. Melody Wintergreen, our correspondent in America, will provide further insights into the city's allure and the enduring legacy of Bugsy Siegel. Beneath the neon glow of a desert dream, the Flamingo Hotel and Casino spreads its wings, and Las Vegas will never be the same. It's December 26, 1946, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel has just rolled the dice on what will become an oasis of opulence in this arid playground. The Flamingo, named for Siegel's long-legged girlfriend, Virginia Hill, is a gamble of grandiose proportions. With mob money meticulously manicured into every inch of this establishment, Bugsy bets big on bringing Hollywood glam to the sands of Nevada. The stakes? Only the future of an entire city. As the roulette wheels spin and the one-armed bandits beckon, high rollers and hopefuls alike flock to what promises to be a paradise paved with prospects and poker chips. The air is thick with cigar smoke and ambition. Fortunes are made with a flip of a card, lost with the clatter of dice. But behind the glitz and the glitter, whispers in darkened corners speak of Siegel's other investments, ones that don't play by the house rules. The Jewish mob and Italian-American mafia watch closely as their golden boy plays his hand. The flamingo rises like a phoenix from the barren desert floor, setting a precedent for what will become a luminescent lineup the Las Vegas Strip, a beacon for those seeking escape, excess, and the exhilaration of excess. So here we stand at the dawn of something dazzling, where every night promises to outshine the day before. And as Bugsy Siegel watches over his neon nest egg, one thing is certain. In this city built on hopes and dreams, it's go big or go home. News bang, the pulse of truth pounding in the public's ears. Today we're in the company of baseball legend Babe Ruth as he embarks on a new chapter with the New York Yankees. Will he continue his home run streak? Stay tuned to find out, Ryder Boff reports. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 26th of December. It's the year of our Lord, 1919. The air is filled with anticipation as we prepare to witness a historic moment. Babe Ruth, a baseball player, was sold by the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees, starting the Curse of the Bambino. Ruth is considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time and was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Red Sox and the Yankees are both professional baseball teams based in Boston and New York, respectively. The curse of the Bambino refers to the 86-year championship drought of the Red Sox between 1918 and 2004, named after Babe Ruth. As we stand on the precipice of history, we're joined by our special guest, the one and only Mr. Babe Ruth himself. He's here to share his thoughts on this momentous occasion. The year is 1919, and I'm about to be sold to the New York Yankees, he says. I'm excited, of course. Who wouldn't be? But I'm a little nervous, too. What if I don't fit in with the team? 
What if I can't hit as many home runs as I did with the Red Sox? What if the curse of the Bambino is real? But hey, what's life without a little bit of risk? So here I go, off to the Yankees. Wish me luck. And with that, we bid farewell to Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player of all time. We'll be watching the game closely, rooting for the Yankees, and hoping that they'll make history. And who knows, maybe we'll even see a home run or two from the one and only Babe Ruth. Here to recount the harrowing tale of underwater fury and severed submarine cables is Penelope Winchime. Brace yourself for a riveting account of Earth's tantrum and the impact on our digital lifelines. In the year 2006, Mother Earth, in a fit of underwater fury, did shake her mighty shoulders not once but twice off the coast of Taiwan. These aquatic shudders sent ripples through the very veins of our global communication, severing the sinewy tendrils of submarine cables that lay nestled in Neptune's bed. The internet, that ethereal web which binds us all in invisible threads of instantaneity, was cast into disarray, leaving bankers to count beans by candlelight and netizens to forage for offline amusements. Buildings trembled like leaves in an autumnal gale, their facades cracking as if the very sky had whispered a curse upon them. The telecommunication lines, those whispering wires that stretched like Ariadne's thread across the ocean's abyss, were silenced. In 1850, we laid these cables with Victorian pomp. Little did we know they would become the lifelines of a world so entwined in digital dalliances. And so we remember this day not for its yuletide cheer, but for the reminder that even in our modernity, we are but humble guests at the mercy of Gaia's grand designs. I'm Penelope Winchime, and may your days be merry and your internet connections uninterrupted. 1898. Calamity Prenderville, Newsbang science correspondent, takes us on a journey to the late 1800s exploring the discovery of radium by the Curies and the pivotal role of British innovation in this groundbreaking achievement. Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're delving into the world of British innovation. Today, we're time-travelling to the late 1800s, where a married couple, Pierre and Marie Curie, discovered the element that would change the world forever. No, not the humble cup of tea, but radium. Now you might think, radium sounds like a new brand of paint for my caravan. But fear not, for this is no ordinary paint. Radium is a radioactive chemical element with symbol Ra and atomic number 88. It's so radioactive, it could give your old microwave a run for its money. The Curies discovered radium at the French Academy of Sciences, but let's not forget the unsung heroes behind this groundbreaking discovery. The British. After all, it was a British invention, the Telegraph, that allowed the Curies to communicate their findings. And let's not forget the British-made kettle, which no doubt kept the Curies fueled during their late-night experiments. Radium is known for its ionising radiation, which is a fancy way of saying it can make things glow in the dark. Imagine the possibilities. Glowing kettles, radiant teacups and illuminated crumpets. The future is bright, my friends, and it's all thanks to British innovation. 
The Curie's discovery launched the Curie family's legacy of five Nobel Prizes. But let's not forget the unsung heroes of this story. The British. After all, it was a British invention, the Nobel Prize, that allowed the Curies to be recognised for their groundbreaking work. So, here's to the Curies and their discovery of radium, and here's to the British, without whom none of this would have been possible. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Remember, keep it bright, keep it British. Newsbang taking the floor of facts and laying the carpet of truth. 1871. The year is 1871 and the first notes of a historic partnership rang through the Gaiety Theatre in London. Gilbert and Sullivan's maiden collaboration, Thespis, premiered, heralding the dawn of a new era in comic opera. The duo's enduring success would leave an indelible mark on Victorian England as they spun a series of timeless hits. But the Gaiety Theatre itself was no mere bystander in this tale. It played a pivotal role in shaping the course of modern musical comedy. And to delve deeper into this story, we turn to our correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my friends. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss and I'm here to bring you the latest and greatest in culture, history, and all that jazz. Tonight, we're traveling back in time to the wild, wild west of 1871. That's right. We're talking about the year when cowboy hats were taller than the Eiffel Tower and horses were the original selfie sticks. Now I know what you're thinking. Smithsonian, what could possibly be so culture-worthy about 1871? Well, buckle up, buttercups, because we're about to dive into a world of mustaches, corsets, and good old-fashioned horseplay. First off, let's talk about the fashion. Oh, the fashion. Picture this. Men in tight pants, suspenders, and bowler hats, while the ladies are strutting their stuff in voluminous skirts, bonnets, and enough lace to make a doily factory blush. It's like a steampunk cosplay convention, but with more manure and less Wi-Fi. But it's not all about the clothes, my friends. No, no, no. 1871 was also a time of great innovation and progress. In fact, it was the year that the first telephone call was made. That's right, folks. Before we had smartphones, we had a dude named Alexander Graham Bell shouting into a tin can. It's like the original Snapchat, but with less nudity and more static. And let's not forget about the music. Oh, the music. It was the era of the Wild West Saloon, where the piano was always playing and the whiskey flowed like a river. It was a time when a man could walk into a bar, order a shot of rye, and belt out a tune about his lost love or his trusty steed. It was like the original American Idol, but with more spittoons and less Simon Cowell. But alas, my friends, all good things must come to an end. And so, as we bid farewell to the wild, wild west of 1871, let us remember the lessons it has taught us. That fashion is fleeting, innovation is key, and a good old-fashioned bar fight never goes out of style. So, until next time, keep it classy, keep it sassy, and keep it cowboy hat tall, my friends. This is Smithsonian Moss, signing off. Waho! News.
news bang, taking the pulse of truth one beat at a time. All right, folks, it's time to wrap up tonight's news bang show with a whirlwind tour of tomorrow's front pages. First up, The Times, reporting on the year 1929, proclaims Stalin wages war on wealthy peasants. It's a classic case of class enemies slaughtered. The Daily Mail, never one to miss a beat, declares Kulaks get their just desserts, with a photo of a tractor crushing a pitchfork. Now let's hop over to 1979, where The Guardian informs us Soviets invade Afghanistan, Amin assassinated. It's a sobering reminder that war is hell. The Sun, always good for a laugh, screams Red Army meets Red Hot Reception, with a picture of a Soviet soldier getting a pie in the face. And finally, we arrive at 537 AD, where the Daily Star shouts, Hagia Sophia, from church to mosque to museum, and back again. It's a headline that truly captures the essence of religious roulette. And that's all for tonight, folks. Remember, keep it real, keep it ridiculous, and keep it newsbang. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.